All right, since Lori Hantla is done, we're going to go ahead and start, right? <laughs> you saw, so you're my timer. <laughs> okay, we'll start here with the Wellspring purpose. You can just say it. To what? To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ. Yep. And the Word of God, so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the Yep. In its gospel, great, good job, guys. <laughs> okay, discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God, shepherds. yes, shepherds her heart, worshipfully. worshipfully. I love having that word there. Heart worshipfully toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Great. If you want, you can jot down um, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, um, just to... <laughs> be a reminder or a helpful verse to go along with discipline one in first Peter two, two Peter tells his readers that they should be like something. He says, you guys should be like newborn babies, um, similar to them in the sense that newborn babies long for something. They cry for something and that's milk. Um, in the same way he wants his readers, he wants us, um, to long for the pure, healthy, health giving, um, word of God. It says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So discipline one tells us that we're trying to shepherd our hearts towards the word of God, and we're shepherding our hearts toward God himself, and we use the word to do that. So we're going to the word, we're using the word to go toward God, and um, we want to long for it. We're able to take our desires Apparently, because he commands us to do to long for something, we're able to take our desires and our um, things that we want and choose what we want. So we're supposed to choose to desire God's word. And that's really the heart of discipline one. All right, discipline two is the home. The faithful woman of God is, yes, concerned for those in her home and ministers. Yep, to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Perfect. And I wanted to read to you guys a little bit from this book. It's um, a short section. This is Carolyn Mahaney's book, and it's called Feminine Appeal. She's basically, she just goes through Titus 2 and explains the seven characteristics that are listed for older women to teach younger women. It's really, I love this book. It's very good. But I wanted to read you this little section where she talks about, she calls it the grand purpose of Titus 2. Um, so we've been given those seven commands, and there's a reason why. At the end of the verse, it says that so that the word of God or the doctrine of God is adorned. Maybe I don't. Yeah, it says the doctrine of God would be adorned. Um, and there's a couple other reasons. So she says, now there are many Christian women who agree with and adhere to the virtues listed in Titus 2 but are unaware of the ultimate purpose of these practical applications. These women are avid proponents of society's need to return to, quote, traditional values, unquote. Yet that is not what this passage is advocating. We are not commanded to love our husbands and to love our children so that we can have strong, happy families like those from a previous era. To be sure, we experience enjoyable and fruitful family relationships when we follow God's instructions, but there is a far higher call. On the other hand, there are Christian women who reject some of the virtues because they regard them, the, the virtues in Titus 2, because they regard them as restrictive and outdated. They single out 
working at home and submissive to their own husbands as purely cultural requirements that are not applicable in modern society. However, that idea is erroneous. This passage remains authoritative and relevant for women today. The commands found in Titus 2 have been given to us for an all-important reason that transcends time and culture. That reason is the gospel of Jesus Christ. These virtues are not about our personal fulfillment or individual preference. They are required for the sake of unbelievers, and I would add to her um, saying that they're for the sake of unbelievers. They're also for the glory of God in the gospel. Um, but she's uh, pointing out how unbelievers, it says, so that those who are lost might come to know our Savior. Um, that's one of the reasons we want to be obedient to Titus 2. This purpose is stated in verses 5, 8, and 10. We are to love our husbands and children, pursue self-control and purity, be workers at home, kind and submissive, for these three reasons, that the word of God may not be reviled, verse 5, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, verse 8, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, in verse 10. So our life at home um, can either misrepresent God's truth um, to even those in our home or to those watching our home, or it can reflect um, God's truth. It can adorn the gospel to those who are in our home and to those who are watching our homes. All right, discipline three. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God <clears throat> sorry, steps into the yes, church, and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now I'm like, oh no. (laughs) Hold on. Yes, the gospel. I thought it was the gospel there. It's the gospel. So the word would probably be okay right there too. Um, You can jot down um, Romans 12, 10. This came to mind since this is where we're at on Sunday mornings. So a couple Sundays ago, we talked about this verse. It says, Um, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So there's a lot of passages in the scripture that talk about how God wants us to do ministry with each other in the body of Christ. And Romans 12 is one of those passages. And um, as we learned a couple Sundays ago, um, we need to love each other unbreakably. We're to love each other, Spence said, like war buddies. So just going through something similar together, there's a camaraderie and a love there. Well, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Maybe not at the same time altogether, but we are together now having experienced a similar salvation uh, to one another. And there's an unbreakable love and fellowship between us because of that. It's like a family where you don't stop being someone's daughter or stop being someone's sister um, because you had a hard conversation. You're still a sister. You're still a daughter. In the same way, um, we continue to be a part of each other, be a part of the family of God. And then um, the other phrase in there is give preference to one another in honor. And Smud, um, he retitled that, or I don't know what the right word is for that, um, to competitively prefer one another. Actually, I don't know where that is. Does anybody remember that one? (laughs) Honor each other competitively. So he was saying... um, Instead of um, what comes natural to us, a race to seek our own glory, we're running a new race 
And in this, we're seeking to not only honor God, but to honor each other, um, to be out there seeking to give others honor. Okay, so that's discipline three. Our last part is our verse, which is Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And I have nothing to add to this because today we have Jacob. He's here to teach us on our theme verse, which is always so good. Um, And I really am just so thankful that I even get to be up here and welcome Jacob, that he's even standing here and he's able to teach us. We're just, we're really so thankful to God for that. Two years ago, I think, Jacob was supposed to teach this on a Thursday. And I think you'd worked all night or something and you were not feeling good. And Smud's like, uh, Jacob's like laying down in a back room or something. I don't know where you were. You're not feeling, you were not feeling well. So he, so he spoke that day. And then the next year, so last year, we kept kind of pushing your lesson back because you're just trying to get better, trying to be able to stand up and yes. get over the effects of... Yeah, it's amazing. It's seriously amazing. But he was able to teach, and then um, he went to Iceland? Finland. Finland. <laughs> so, just know it's somewhere cold. And um, anyway, so we're glad to have you here. <laughs> You did. I think you didn't get to teach on Thursday for some reason. I think you taught on Saturday. So anyway, this will be really good to hear. <laughs> so there you go. Alright, well thank you for having me for getting up early this morning. Welcome back to Wellspring. We get to spend an extended amount of time in one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, the the namesake of of this ministry, Wellspring. So it's Proverbs 4.23. So today obviously focuses on Wellspring Discipline 1, right? But it's, you're going to see the, the clear connection, just like you do in all of Wellspring, the clear connection to Discipline 2, Discipline 3. And, uh, and hopefully, I, <clears throat> hopefully understand a little bit better what we mean when we say shepherd your heart or um, guard your heart. So open up your Bibles to Proverbs 4.23 with me. Um, you'll hopefully just have it memorized if you don't already. Uh, but it's still helpful to, to look down at the verse in front of you. And let's pray. God, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, with a passage that we're very comfortable with, maybe a lesson that we've heard before, God, I, I pray that you would expose the truth of your word, and even more than that, expose you, expose yourself to us. I beg that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, and more importantly, cause us to worship you, to seek you with our whole heart. God, grant us understanding by your spirit, and spirit, please grant my heart and the heart of my hearers a submissive posture before you as we approach you through your word. 
beg that my words would be faithful to your word and that I would be the first to apply these things to my life. But that all of the hearers, we wouldn't merely hear and go away deceiving ourselves. Um, but God, where we see sin, there would be repentance. Where we see evidence of you in us through sanctification and, and justification, God, I pray that we would worship you, glorify you in those things. Help us to, to pay atten attention, stay engaged. And most of all, God, just remain submissive under your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, look down at Proverbs 4.23. You also see it on your sheet, on your worksheet. You're going to see that there is, in the simple verse, you could think of Proverbs 4.23 as just three parts. The outline is pretty uh, self-evident. From the verse, which is, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. There's a what, a how, and a why. The what is, is the command. What is the command of Proverbs 4.23? It's keep your heart, or like the NAS says, watch over your heart. Or some others, guard your heart. All of those uh, reveal that what the Hebrew is getting after, which is um, basically a, a vigilant, watchful care for your heart. That is the command Solomon then goes on to say how the son is supposed to follow that command. And it reveals the, the preeminence, the importance of this command. It's not just one among many, but it, it is something that Solomon's son and we are to do with all vigilance, above all else, with all diligence. So there's a what, a how, and then a why. The why is the reason, and that's where we're going to start this morning is you're supposed to guard your heart above all else because it's the wellspring of life. The heart is the source from which all of life springs. It's the source of life. Have you ever sinned and thought, where did that come from? Almost feeling like that action, that, those words, that response, that, didn't, that couldn't have come from me. Right? You, you think, that was an aberrant behavior. That's not who I am. Ultimately, though, this verse, right, that truth that all of your life flows from your heart. Um, you explode at your roommate's short temper with your husband, anger at your children, entertaining or acting on sinful fantasies, laziness, lying, gossip, sharp speech, or maybe the flip side, glorifying God from your heart a worshipful posture towards him, selfless love for your neighbor. Whatever it may be, those things, whatever flows out of you, whatever you do, think, say, where did that come from? It came from your heart, the most inner you. You can't think, okay, I have an inner me, and then what comes out of me is something else. right? What you do came from your heart. Jesus says your words right? Come from your heart. The fruit reveals the root. It's, it's consistent throughout all of scripture that the sin that you do, indeed, everything you do, good or bad, every action, thought, deed, or word, think of it like water. 
that flowed from the source, the wellspring of your heart. It's flowing from the inner you. And what comes out of you actually reveals what's going on at the most inner you. And what's going on at the most inner you is most clearly seen through what you do. So Proverbs 4.23, it helps us get at the root of our sin problem. And it prepares us for the great gospel solution to the heart of that problem. And it will guide us towards walking in purity of life. What this verse reveals is that there is no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Right? There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or you could put it another way. There's no part of your life that the heart does not affect. Right? You can't cordon off areas of your life and say, okay, I'm going to make sure that that part of my heart doesn't, you know, I, it won't show itself in my relationship with my kids or my husband. I can, I can compromise with my heart and I'll still be okay. That can't be true. Or... This is another one. The character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. And all of those statements, they just flow from the truth that the heart is the wellspring of your life. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. There's no part of your life that the heart does not affect. And the character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. Right, the illustration is pretty simple. It's, it's one of a city's vital water source. Pure water at the source can provide everyone in the city with pure water. But if the source is contaminated, there's, there's no hope for pure water for that city. That would be an illustration that's extremely evident to cities 3,000 years ago. Right, today we have water treatment plants. We can deal with some dirty water, but still, if dirty water comes out of the treatment plant, the city's not going to have any pure water. What we take for granted now would have been very evident then. Where do, where do cities tend to be formed? Right around sources of pure water, right? You look at, at maps of ancient cities, I mean, even really cities today, we tend to be around sources of, of water. Where there's no water, you can't live. And um, if water gets contaminated, there's really no hope for, for life, for healthy life in that city. So this truth is, is a problem because the Bible describes the natural human heart in some pretty unflattering terms. Turn your, your page over to the, the top of page two, the top of the back side. <clears throat> Consider Jeremiah 17.9. This is talking, <clears throat> talking about the natural human heart. The, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And think about what this heart is. If this heart is the source of all that you are, and this is the description of the natural heart that's somewhat devastating. Uh, Genesis 6, 5 is probably even more so. Turn in your Bibles there. This is God's assessment of the human heart and the reason why he was moved to destroy all of humanity except by his grace, preserving Noah and his family through the ark. 
Genesis 6, 5. Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that, you may want to underline this. Every intention of his heart was only evil continually. And the flood didn't fix man's heart problem. It's actually, I think it's Genesis 8, 21 or in that region. After the flood, God made the exact same assessment of the human heart. Um, that did not change, right? The flood didn't change human's heart, the human heart problem. God's assessment of man, that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. That's just as true of the natural human condition. Post-flood is pre and so if you take those two statements and we just do some logical math, and that's what you see, right? You see Jeremiah 17, 9 plus Genesis 6, 5, that the heart is evil. Add that to, he, to um, Proverbs 4, 23, that the heart is the source of all life. And what would you expect to be the, what flows out of, human, of, of people's lives? And that's really what, what uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12 quotes from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. That none is righteous, no, not one. Right? If your heart's evil, and what you do comes out of your heart, then you would expect that no one does good. No, not one. And that is the biblical assessment of the natural human life. No one does good. No, uh, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. <clears throat> but remember, this does not describe the Christian. God does not leave the Christian in this situation. Speaking of the new covenant with Israel that Christian Gentiles get to enjoy as well. God says in Ezekiel 36, 26. Turn there. I want you to look at Ezekiel 36, 26. This is so sweet. Ezekiel, it goes right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. If you hit Daniel, you went too far. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, God promised Israel that he will someday give them a heart transplant. That would be their only hope for cleaning. That hasn't yet happened for all of Israel. But it's what God does for each one of us when he saves us. And what vivid imagery this is that a heart transplant. I, I get the privilege to administer anesthesia. Every day I, I get to do 
usually work on sick hearts. That's sort of what my specialty. And, and so what you see, or what I get to see every day is just the importance of a, of a healthy heart. But illustrated on the flip side of, of just how devastating what we call cardiomyopathy or a diseased heart is. When, when your heart is diseased like this, when you have a, a dysfunction, it actually starts to act more like stone than healthy, soft, supple tissue. And if you think of, of what a, a heart pump is supposed to do, so we're changing the illustration back to the physical heart, but it's an apt one. Um, blood pours in and the heart's supposed to stretch to accommodate it. That's what happens in the exercise. All the blood gets pumped back from your legs to your heart. Your heart expands. You start pumping larger volumes of blood. You get the blood to, to your organs that need it. Same thing happens in stress or even when you're concentrating, right? Your, your cardiac output can increase because your heart can stretch to accommodate new blood. But after a heart attack or you get viral cardiomyopathy or really any source of, of cardiomyopathy, your heart becomes sort of hard, rigid. It can't stretch to accommodate the new blood and it doesn't squeeze as hard. It starts to act more like stone. And you can, act, you can see that clearly when you look at it under echo. And, and so when that happens, what happens in the body when the heart's diseased your organs start to fail. You see somebody, their mind starts to go. They can't remember things, can't think, tired all the time. You walk and, and their muscles are, are atrophying because they're not getting enough blood flow and they just get tired. Even stent, right? It's the symptoms of heart failure, just you can't, short of breath, even at rest. Kidneys start to fail. Gut starts to fail. The whole body starts to be full of death because the heart is hard. And it's crazy because you take that person and you transplant them with a new healthy heart and all these other systems come back healthy. You see somebody a few weeks, months after a heart transplant, they're a different person. All their, everything that they do is different because they were changed from the, from the heart. And so that's a, a helpful illustration. That's what God does, but even more dramatically for the Christian heart. He takes us when we were dead and makes us alive. We're a new creation in him. He takes out our old heart of stone that couldn't do good, right? Remember the old man, new man illustrations? We, the old man, you could not do good. You, there was no inkling in you, no ability to glorify God with your life. You could do things that maybe look good, but ultimately, tainted with sin, there was no ability to do good. And no one does good, no, not one, except now. God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And for the first time, you can obey him from the heart. <clears throat> so think about that. He took your old dead heart and replaced it with a new heart. You were born again, John 3, 3. You're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He's given you a new heart. At regeneration, God declared us righteous and made us righteous from the heart so that for the first time we'd have the ability to obey God and love God from the heart. Turn in your Bibles to, to Romans 6.17. We used to be slaves of sin because our heart was sinful, right? You will only do what your heart is naturally inclined to do. And if your heart is Every intention of your heart is only evil continually. What will be manifested in your life pre-salvation? You're a slave to sin. 
You're a slave to, to the very nature of your heart. So God doesn't drag you along and say, hey, your heart wants to only do sin, and I'm going to force you to go against your will to do good now. No, he changes us from the heart, and that's what Romans 6.17 says. Thanks be to God. Don't skip over that. I want to take an excursion real fast. You know where we're going. God, thanks be to God. But God, Paul can't help but talk about this without saying thanks be to God. And that's not a throwaway phrase. Don't let that be a throwaway phrase in your own heart. This statement that God has changed you from the heart is probably old news for you. If it's not, praise God that you're hearing it now. But this is likely old news. You're like, yep, I know that. That's a theological truth that I have in my pocket. And the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. If you sit under the most glorious truths of the gospel and check out or say, I know that, and can let your heart remain unaffected and not worship God for it, that's a dangerous place to be. I love how Paul starts the statement with thanks be to God. When you read things in your Bible, don't always look for the new things. Don't always look for, I need to find something new I didn't know before when I read in God's Word. You'll never exhaust God's Word. You will find new things all the time and be surprised. Like, I've read that passage a hundred times. How did I not see that? And that's cool. But sometimes you just read God's Word, and for the thousandth time, the ten thousandth time, you come away and just say, Wow, God is patient. Don't brush that aside. Say, I need to find something else. I already knew God was patient. Just say, thank you, God. Just like you were so patient with Israel, you're patient with me. And apart from your patience, I would be so lost. I worship you. Thank you. Thank you for showing me that in your word. And we'll get back to that point. <laughs> but please don't move on from the thanks be to God. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, look at what it says. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. When you became obedient from the heart, you were freed. You were, you've been set free from sin and now you've become slaves to righteousness. John Flavel, he's a 17th century Puritan. He's seriously one of my favorite authors. Um, it's good to learn from old dead guys. Make a habit of, of reading outside of this century. Uh, John Flavel, he, he wrote in his good book, Keeping the Heart, just, just on Proverbs 4.23. The heart of man is his worst part before salvation, and it's his best part after it. Praise and thank God for that. Seriously, stop now and do that. Proverbs 4.23 told us that the heart is the wellspring of our lives. And that would be horrible news, right? If that was the old, if that was just the declaration over mankind, it would be true. The heart's the wellspring of life. And your heart's evil. And that's why the wrath of God abides on this world. 
But there's good news that God, by his mercy, changes us from the heart and makes us new creatures, forgives us, but changes our heart. And that change in us that the gospel brings is not superficial. It's not total, right? We're not glorified yet. We'll get there later. What we will be has not yet appeared. But it's not superficial. He didn't just change us a little bit. He changed you as a Christian radically from the heart. You've been changed to the very core of who you are. You've been changed from the very wellspring of your life, your heart. So that everything you learn today, everything you resolve to do, sit under the shadow of the massive truth of the gospel. Do you understand that that means that anything good that you do, you don't get to pat yourself on the back for that. If you look at this and you can say, I can obey God, that does not contribute one iota to your justification, to your salvation. That is merely evidence, and not merely like it's a small thing. That is, that is evidence that God's spirit is in you. You don't get to say, oh, look, I, there's something good in me. That must be why God saved me. You know, you say, no, there's something good in me. That's evidence that God did save me. So don't take any pride in that. Apart from just pride and saying, um, far be it for me to boast, except in Christ my Lord, except in the gospel. So, Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, and this is at the bottom of page two, he wisely advised his church, till the spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion. And that's like a religion of works. That's what basically every religious system, except for biblical Christianity, ultimately is. But apart from the spirit regenerating the soul, all outward religion will be a dead and pitiful thing. To make up a religion of doing or saying something that's good while the heart is void of the spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace is the hypocrite's religion. And there will always be temptation in religion to try to do this. And this is what we must avoid at all costs. But remembering this truth about the wellspring of your heart being changed and that's the source from which all of your obedience flows, that is such a guard from a hypocrite's religion. right? We don't do what the Pharisees did where we try to polish the outside of the glass while we have water inside that's full of poison. right? You don't have nice clean pipes flowing to your, coming to your house, clean pipes on the outside while poison flows through the inside. God changed the very nature of the water that flows. So that what comes out of your pipes, what sits in your glass, is clean. Right? We're not tombs full of dead men's bones. He took a dead man and made us alive. So don't clean the outside. Act out what God did from the inside. And what God did at the inside is so precious. Guard it. Imagine that city. Remember the city with a vital water source that... It can only be pure if the source is pure. So imagine a city that was built around a poisoned well. Right? That city wouldn't really flourish. There wouldn't be a lot of life in that city. Right? They they would know 
what poisoned water did because just like that person with the bad heart right their their life is, is it, it definitely is not full of life the city would not be full of life it would have the effects of the poison all throughout every every individual but then imagine a king comes and digs a new well makes them a new well that's pure pure water for the first time the city that only knew poison poisoned water now for the first time has pure water the very nature of all the people in that city would change everything about that city would change where there would be death before there'd be life there'd be anemia there'd be it'd be bigger right this everything would change in that city and for the first time they would know the joys of pure water the people in that city would never in their right mind think, I wonder how much poison I could let back in this well and still be okay. Right? The, the, the recipient of a heart transplant wouldn't be like, man, I wonder if I could have another just small heart attack and be cool. Like, they would they'd protect that heart with, with everything in them. Um, and we are those people. God changed you from the heart. And he didn't just think about it. Part of the, the sweetness of the gospel is God, he could have. He could have just had his people born out of the womb sinless. He could have done it like that, right? Where you never knew what it was to be a sinner, to, to be sinner from the heart. Where your heart was unmixed in its devotion to sin. God, God didn't, he could have chosen some to be born without that mixed condition. He, he, in his wisdom, did not. He let us live life in an unmixed condition. I think part of it so that we would know the joy, so that we would know the grace of this heart transplant. There will be an eternity. We're, we're looking back on this short life and the even shorter part of this life where you lived in that unmixed devotion to sin. It seems like just a blink of an eye, but this little blink of an eye of living with that old dead heart, I think it, it makes us worship God all that much more. And right now it should make you guard the preciousness of this new heart that you have all that much more vigorously, right? above all else, with all vigilance. When we think of the poison in that well, what is it? It's sin. And that's what Charles Spurgeon was getting at in this uh, quote at the top of page three. And as we read it, think of the poison of sin in the heart of, of an individual doesn't only affect that individual. Our Wellspring disciplines, the Bill Disciplines D1, 2, and 3, we didn't make those up as Grace Bible Church. Um, thankfully, this is not new. It comes from the Bible, and you see it taught throughout history. And uh, Charles Spurgeon actually lays it out pretty clearly here. Look for Discipline 1, 2, and 3 in this quote. As you see the effects of sin, not only on, on your own heart, but how it goes to Discipline 2, the, the home, and will ultimately affect your ministry as well. The poison of the soul is only sin. And this is like to poison in many respects. Poison, wherever it stays, wherever it enters, stays not here, but diffuses itself all over the body and never ceases until it has affected all. Such is the nature of sin. 
enter where it will. It creeps from one member of the body to another, from the body to soul, till it has infected the whole man, and then from man to man, till the whole family. And it stays not there, but it runs like a wildfire from family to family, till it has poisoned a whole town. And so a whole country and a whole kingdom. Woeful experience proves this true. The poison of sin won't stay in your heart. It will seek to destroy you, then your home, your ministry and your small group in this church. What poison are you dabbling with? What poison are you dabbling with? Is there any part of your life right now where you think, I, I thought that I could play with that poison and, and maybe be unaffected? Your kids, your spouse, this church, most importantly, you will not be unaffected by letting poison of sin near? Is there any compromise in your life for you? You have some area of your life off limits to the passionate pursuit of purity, to this guarding your, your life, your heart above all else. Some show you love on Netflix that you shouldn't. An app on your phone that drags your heart away, a, a relationship, a way of thinking, I don't know what it is you might if, if that's there write it down and uh, confess that to the Lord and, and let, let the rest of the message today be part of, of the repentance from that, from that sin in pursuit of God so the the truth that the heart is the wellspring of life, it leads very naturally to Solomon's uh, command, right? We, we actually haven't talked about guard your heart yet. If you just think, like Solomon could have just wrote, hey, the heart's the wellspring of your life. And we could have intuited the rest of this verse. Well, if the heart's the wellspring of my life, we should really be about guarding it. And if it's the source of all life, we should be guarding it above all else with all vigilance. But thankfully, he spelled it out, right? Because we don't always think deeply about things the way that we should. And, and great, I'm, I'm grateful that he did. So, but this command, guard your heart, it just flows naturally from the truth that the heart's the wellspring of, of your life. So if, if the heart is, is the wellspring, guard your heart. Sin is poison, Purity is to be protected, so guard your heart. Notice with me that as Solomon is speaking, he gives this instruction as a command. Guard here is an imperative. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's not something passive. It is a command that you must actively do. You don't guard passively, but the word used for guard, watch, keep is the same as is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an alert sentry in a watchtower guarding valuable resources. A city dependent on pure water source, right? Go back to the illustration. If a city, they know that they're dependent on a pure water source. 
and they anticipate that there's very real threats to the purity of that water source. There's an enemy always seeking to poison that well, and, and there is for us, right? Residual sin and Satan, temptations from this world. There, there is ever-present threat. We're at a war. We're, in, we're at war. There is ever-present threat seeking to taint the, this well source, this wellspring. And just like that city at war would place their best sentries, their best guards around the, wells, around the wellspring, never letting them rest. A city at war, they'd always have guards on watch. We have a precious, newly pure water source with ever-present threats seeking to poison the well. So guard your hearts. So how are we to do this? Right, you could probably come up with some, some methods, but thankfully God's word gives us, I think, answers the heart of, of that question. Okay, I'm, I'm convinced. I need to guard it. What do I do? I think Solomon may have actually had his dad's words in mind here. Whether he did or he didn't, David basically asked this exact same question. How, how can a young man keep his way pure? I mean, that ultimately, how, how do I keep my way? What, what flows out of my life pure? Well, that's going to come from the wellspring of your life. So how, how do you do that? How do I keep my heart pure? That's, that's the question. And, and David asks that in Psalm 119, verse 9. That's at the bottom of page 3. How can a young man keep his way pure? And what is the answer? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. How did David guard his heart? He guarded his heart with God's word by seeking God through his word. So as you guard your heart, you will be protecting it from evil. And we talked about that, right? The sin or the poison is sin. But guarding your heart is not most fundamentally for the Christian about what do I keep out? It does include that. It must include that. Right, You can't dabble with sin and think, how much poison can I let in this heart, back into this heart? But it's not most importantly about what you keep out, but it's most importantly what you keep in, what you pursue. You will be careful to fight temptation, not thinking that your heart can tolerate just a little bit of evil. But most importantly and most fundamental to guarding your heart is seeking God with all your heart. Did you see that? How does David guard his heart according to your word? And he lays it out in the next, next sentence, two parts. But first and most preeminent is with my whole heart, I seek you, God. As we guard the wellspring of our heart, we must be shepherding our hearts to the word of God to get the God of the word. In your guarding of your heart, make sure that you are not shepherding it to pharisaical behavior-focused religion. Which is how I think a focus on, on outward behavior, there's always a temptation to devolve into that. You assess things based on how... 
How am I obeying? And that's not inaccurate because how you obey reveals the ultimate source of your heart. But how do you attack that heart source? You seek God with all your heart. What's purity? Right? Think back to chemistry. If you have a pure substance, what is it? It's something that doesn't have a contaminant. And if you're seeking God with all your heart, or you, you want your heart pure to him. You want to avoid the sin that would seek to contaminate it. But you don't focus merely on, okay, let's, re- let's not have contaminants, but what is the substance that we're going for? We're seeking a heart that's pure in its devotion to the Lord. Right? It goes back to Jesus' uh, parable about, you know, you, you, you get the demons out, and if you don't put something else good in the house, what's going to come back? Seven other demons, right? They're going to find a house nice, clean, ready, ready to be lived in. No, you, you fill that house with pure devotion to the Lord. You can look at a New Testament illustration of, of David's heart purifying God's seeking from Psalm 119, verse 9. And turn with your Bible, turn in your Bibles with me to, to 1 John 3, 2 through 3. I don't think this one made your... Uh, your sheet. So put this at, you can take notes on this at the bottom of page three. This is so sweet. First John three, two through three. You might be hearing me talk about this new heart and be like, oh, that sounds so good. A heart pure in its devotion to the Lord. But, but that's not what I feel all the time in my life. Right? The, the reality is in this, this mixed condition that we're in, God did change you from the heart, but residual sin in your flesh is, is there. What we will be, here's one way to say it, what we will be has not yet appeared. Right? You are not what you used to be. Beloved, you are God's children now. And what does that mean? You, you've actually been made from the heart to be God's children. What, what's a child like? A child bears the image of his father. God didn't merely adopt you and give you the privilege of sonship, but he actually changed you from the heart to become like him. Be children of your father, right? That's when you show patience to your neighbor, when you uh, forgive from the heart, you're like your father who shines his sun and rains his rain on the just and the unjust. God is patient and gracious when we are patient and gracious. We're showing, we're, we're actually showing that nature where God changed us from the heart. When you see that in your life, you say, God, that's not why you saved me. That's evidence that you did save me, that I am your child. We could go on and on about this forever, but, but I want you to say, to, to realize that you are God's children now, it says in 1 John 3, 2, 3. But what we will be hasn't yet appeared. Don't be discouraged by that. Look forward to the day when you will be like him. But let's look at this verse and see how that happens. Beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We will be like him because we'll see him as he is. How will God accomplish glorification when he returns? 
how will God change you from this mixed condition to an unmixed condition in perfect purity and devotion to him? Because we will see him as he is. That's the means of that change. That's not dissimilar from the way that we are progressively transformed through sanctification now. Right? Ultimately, we see him then, and boom, we're changed, glorified. That is not dissimilar from the means of our sanctification now. Where do we see him most clearly? In his word. That is the means that God, when he saves you, he changes you from the heart. But there's still lots of sin, right? And through our life, through the sanctification of trials and pursuing him in the midst of those, through giving him glory and blessing, through, through everything in our life, as we progressively, right, you're saved, you're changed from the heart, and you're slowly transformed towards, towards holiness. You see him one day, and boom, you get all the way up to, to un, unmixed devotion. But how do you ride along that, that progression of, of sanctification? It's through seeking God with your whole heart according to his word, through his word. So let me ask you, is, is that what you're aiming at when you go to God in his word? First off, you have to ask, are you going to God in his word? You don't read God's word every day in order to check a box or because that's what Christians do. Whether you feel like it or not, you must get your heart before God in his word. Every day, in the midst of every day, throughout every day, if you're doing this above all else with all vigilance, you don't get to skip days and be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to ride, I'm going to ride the spiritual high or whatever from reading God's word yesterday, right? If you don't guard your heart, um, you are not seeking God with all your heart. You will be drawn away. So seek God. But when you open up God's word in the morning, don't just read it. Say, ask yourself the question and actually ask it. And I would really encourage you to write the answer to this question out. Every day when you are in God's word, say, what does this reveal about God? You, you can ask lots of other questions of God's word. But no matter where you are in God's word, because God's word is ultimately revelation, right? It does include commands, but it's not ultimately a rule book. It does include truth, but it's not just like an almanac, right? God's word is ultimately revelation of him. So no matter where you are in God's word, if you ask the question, what does this reveal about God? You will find an answer. And that's sweet because there are large sections of God's word that's sort of like reading somebody else's mail. It was written for you with you in mind, right? These things were written down as examples to us so that we might not desire evil as they did. That's 1 Corinthians 10 talking back about, you know, when you're reading about Israel in the wilderness. But in some senses, God's making promises to Israel in the wilderness that aren't for us. But what does it do? It reveals something about who God is. So you don't have to say, try to, oh, apply promises that aren't for you to you. But you say, in this promise, I get to see something about who my father is. You can answer, answer that question. What does this reveal about God? And then the next part of the question is, how must that affect me? 
What does this reveal about God, and how must that affect me? When God is revealed, you can't go away unaffected. The answer might be, I need to fall down on my knees and worship. It might be, I need to repent of that sin. It might be, I need to be patient with my neighbor. It might be, I need to love my things, or not love my possessions, because I can't love the things of this world and love God. Right? You, you can't. It, it, there might be lots of application, but application doesn't come first. Application flows from God being revealed. And so no matter where you are in God's word, seek to answer that question. What does this reveal about God? And then seek him with your whole heart. And you can't seek God and wander from his commandments. Right? With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. That's not, you don't get to merely say, okay, I'm going to, what does this reveal about God? And then think that not wandering from commandments is just going to passively happen. Right? There's this move in Christianity today of think about the cross and the rest of life just happens. That's not the way it works. You think about the cross you guard your heart. <laughs> you think about the cross and you resolve to obey. You think about the cross and you confess sin. Don't confess sin, resolve to obey um, without thinking about the cross. But as you think about the cross, and ultimately what are you thinking about? At the cross, God is more clearly revealed than I think anywhere else in Scripture. Think about, think about God revealed in all of Scripture, especially at the cross. And, as a result, resolve to obey, confess your sin, ultimately guard your heart. So, do you see how important it is to flee sin and fix the gaze of your heart, hopefully, on God and his word? How must we do this, then, if this is so important? If the heart is the wellspring of your life, the natural command is guard it. That you don't get to do that as one priority among many. You don't get to do that half-heartedly. Sometimes you do it above all else with all diligence and vigilance. Right? The last part, the how of Proverbs 4:23 is self-evident. And flows naturally from the why and the what. We have a new heart with new love and affection for God, but the flesh within, Satan and temptations without, are constantly assaulting the heart, seeking to taint it with sin and to draw you away from pure devotion to the Lord. So set up a guard for your heart by above all else, not being content to let even an ounce of sin in, Rather, seek our, we guard our heart by seeking God with our whole heart through his word all the time, every day, no higher priority, no days off. Let me ask you, what do you do with more attention, more devotion than you guard your heart? 
The answer should be nothing. Think about your physical life. There are some things that you will guard. Water, for example. Right? You won't let yourself go long without water because you know the effects on your life. Right? If, if you go hours, you're going to start to get thirsty. If you go a whole day, you're going to start to not function as well. If you go multiple days, you're going to die. You will prioritize access to water in your life. Similar to salt and food. You, you know the effects. You feel the effects. The effects of wandering, of, of not guarding your heart, they're no less dramatic. But if you're not thinking about it, if you're not tuned in, if you're not passionately pursuing purity of heart, guarding it, you might grow comfortable with it. Have you ever gone for, you're in God's word daily for a long time and it's natural and you miss a day, you miss two days, you miss three days and all of a sudden this new sort of mindlessness to the things of God, right? When you're in God's word every day, you see a sunset and you worship. You have a trial pop up in your life and you trust God because you've set your heart on, you're more aware of God than anything else in your life. You start to wander. And now all of a sudden, where's my next meal come from? Isn't an exercise in God, you take care of the sparrows. You clothe the lilies of the field. You're going to, you're going to take care of me. You move from that to I'm anxious. Why? Because you weren't guarding your heart. You're starting to see the effect in your life, just like you start to see the effect in your life of skipping a meal, or you can skip a meal, skipping a, a bunch of meals, not drinking water, maybe not exercising. Your body starts, if you exercise daily, right? If you've done that, if you've been in the habit of exercising daily and you miss a workout, you start to feel it. But when you miss five or six, it sort of starts to feel normal. But the effects are no less evident. Um, all that much more with guarding your heart to God and his word. So what would that city do to guard their water source, right? They would put their best sentries there, their best guards. They wouldn't do it passively and say, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll probably, you know, if the enemy comes, we'll probably see it. We'll just go about life and We'll probably see it if they start attacking. You actually put up an active guard. Um, what active guards do you have up in your life? And let me ask you, do you see the guarding of your heart as just one task among many? Solomon commands us that we must guard our heart with all vigilance and above all else. And if the Bible commands you to do something above all else or with all vigilance, you ought to listen and actually prioritize that thing in that way. This isn't a suggestion. It isn't something that would be good to do in addition to all the other things that we do. You know, guarding your heart must be the most important task of your life, and it must be done in all of life. Right? It isn't like you guard your heart in the morning and you say, that heart guarding will hold me through for the rest of the day. But in all of your other tasks, heart guarding is preeminent, right? On your way, if, if, you, if you have a job, what, what do you do in the car between home and work? 
you're dropping your kids off at school, if you're exercising, if you're making a meal, if you're cleaning the house, well, you fold laundry. What's going on in your mind? Are you grumbling? I can't believe I have to fold these clothes. I just, no matter what, you know, I'm tempted to do that. When, when Kiki's out of commission for a day, I'm like, I can't believe laundry never quits. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm tempted in the midst of that, rather than thank God for his provision of clothes and a washing machine and the family I get to love with it, I'm tempted to grumble. Is that, what am I doing when I'm folding laundry? I have an opportunity to guard my heart to God in his word by thinking about it in the way that God's word should reveal I should think about folding laundry, or I could not guard my heart. I can, what do I listen to? How do I shepherd my heart to respond to somebody cutting me off in traffic or the unexpected traffic jam that makes me late and changes my mind, changes my plans? How do I respond to those moments? Do they reveal a shepherding of my heart, a guarding of my heart above all else? Or do they reveal just, I'm just going to let myself be tossed to and fro by every, every trial? Ultimately, trials, whether they're big, like unexpected cancer, or small, like the traffic jam, right? Trials and the way that you respond are one of the most, I think, potent ways to reveal the way that you have been shepherding your heart. And helping yourself respond rightly in trials is one of the best ways to actually shepherd your heart to God and his word. Because the trials don't go away. It's not like you can just, I'm going to read God's word in the morning and I'll be fine throughout the rest of the day. But you actually have opportunity to cast your cares on him. To thank him for things that you naturally wouldn't thank him for. To respond differently than somebody without the spirit would. Where where do you get most clear? All right, let's let's hold this up. There are some religious people. You might get as a Christian living in the East Valley, you might regularly get confused for a Mormon. Because you just look moral. Somebody who doesn't get to see you, see your heart. Okay. Mormons who do not have a changed wellspring. And you, who does, your life better look different. You better have different water flowing out. But where is sometimes that most clearly seen? When you face a trial. Um, and that's sometimes big, sometimes small. But where you will be different is you don't grumble, you trust. Right? You don't, you're not anxious. You're calm. Say, my, my Lord has this you don't love other people because of what you get you love other people because you've been shown this incredible love from your father um, so you're shepherding your heart to God must diligently, vigilantly above all else, no days off involve sitting down in reading God's word. And let me commend to you, listening to God's word too. We have so many sweet ways to just listen to God's word. Now with um, with recordings. I can't, I have like probably seven, eight different versions of, of audio Bibles. Use them. Um, 
And even when you're not reading God's word, even when you're not listening to God's word, shepherd to your heart to God through what he has revealed to you through diligently caring for your heart in God's word. Um, so don't go away from God's word unaffected by what, what happened, which is why he asked that question. What does this reveal about God and how must this affect me? So being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient, right? You, it's easy to be excited about this while we sit here among, among each other, right? Um, among a group of women who are, who are also excited, who have these new hearts and are excited about this. It's easy to do it here and then you get home and the temptations to drag you away arise. Um, being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient and agreeing with Solomon regarding this verse does not mean that you are automatically guarding your heart. Understanding guarding your heart does not mean that you're doing it. Being excited about it does not mean that you're doing it. Consider Solomon with me. This is going to be on back of page four, or on page four at the top. And turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. All right, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. First Kings, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Right, Solomon wrote this verse in Proverbs that we're reading. He clearly knew the importance of heart guarding. He had seen the example of it in David, his father. Right, a man after God's own heart. Not perfectly, but a king who could be described as that. Solomon knew it, and if you read the book of 1 Kings, that's actually a great one to just sit back and listen to and read in one fell swoop. 1 Kings 1 through 1 Kings 11. And you see Solomon do some things that from the outside look like, man, that is a man who is devoted to the Lord. Look, look at the temple he made. There are sacrifices being offered in this, country, in this nation like there has never been before. Solomon is leading the nation towards loving the Lord. There's a temple, there's sacrifices regularly going on. Solomon's choosing wisdom above riches. And there are patterns of compromise. It's almost like the king was commanded to have a copy of God's word to be constantly read before him. He was in that. He was commanded not to pursue many wives. Solomon did. Don't go down to Egypt for horses. I mean, as specific as that, Solomon goes down to Egypt for horses. Um, and, and a whole lot of others. There's specific commands in Deuteronomy for the king, and Solomon just breaks them all. And you see that laid out in, in 1 Kings 1 through 11. And you see a guy who at the beginning is devoted to the Lord, it, it appears. And by the end, let's see what the effect of his life was, or the effects of those heart compromises was. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, 
God gave them a specific warning and command for the sake of their heart. You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Really quick, I don't want you to look back at Solomon and say, that fool. There are some specific commands, specific things that Jesus and the apostles say will turn your heart away from God. Right? Don't love the world and the things of this world. You can't love both God and money. Right? Don't be unequally yoked. <laughs> there are some things that, that will turn your heart. We could go on and on about those that, that are a threat to your heart. Don't dabble with them. Right? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There are um, things that Jesus and the apostles warn us will turn your heart away that can't be held simultaneously with love for God. So don't merely look at Solomon and say, that fool. But as you, as you read this, think, what are those things that I'm warned not to dabble with, not to compromise on? And look for them as you read God's word and flee from them as you guard your heart for God and his word. Let's, let's keep reading about Solomon. He was warned, they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. David sought God with his whole heart. Solomon, through a series of heart-poisoning compromises, had his heart turned away. And consider the horrible effects on Solomon's heart, home, and ministry due to these compromises, right? Discipline one is not isolated from two and three. It must come before and be the foundation of it. And look at what compromise on discipline one, the tragedy that it brings to your home and your ministry. What was, what happened to Solomon? His heart was turned away to false gods and to trust in other nations over God to fight for his kingdom right? instead of trusting we can go into all of that as a whole lesson all, all to itself but what was the effect on his children his children did not love God and within a generation the kingdom was ripped in two and inundated with idolatry and finally God's people were marched out of their promised land to exile and chains. Little compromises that Solomon was certain he could handle poisoned the well and all that flowed from it. Solomon knew Proverbs 4.23 better than we do. He wrote it. But guarding your heart is much more than knowing the command. Guarding your heart is much more than being excited about guarding your heart or using heart-guarding lingo. We must actually do it. And yesterday's success at guarding your heart does not guarantee tomorrow's. 
it will help. Consistency is your friend. Right after Proverbs 4.23, it talks about keeping your eyes straight ahead, not veering to the right or left. It is only helpful to daily just walk back and forth with your eyes fixed on the Lord and like make a rut right in, the, in, in your path. It makes it easier to not veer to the right and the left when you've had a well-worn rut of guarding your heart to God and his word. But yesterday's success does not guarantee tomorrow's. Do not put this on autopilot. Say, I was fine yesterday. I'm sure I'll be fine today. And let your vigilance wane. But above all else, more than you pursue water, food each day, more than you care for your home, seek to care and provide for your home, more than you diligently care for your children, more than you make sure you're successful at work, more than anything else, and in all those other things. It doesn't mean forsake those things, but as you pursue those things, above all else, in those things, guard your heart. God has given you a new heart and he's given you the Holy Spirit and he commands and enables you to guard your heart. You must do it. Above all else, no days off, no higher priorities. This is a lifelong faithful process. So it's helpful to periodically assess how am I doing at guarding my heart. And so like a city might want to check its water source. They say, oh, I think I'm doing pretty well at, at keeping this water source pure, but you actually would go out to houses and test the purity of the water at the houses, right? You, you say, I think I'm doing good, or where am I failing, right? What contaminant is in here? You go out to the places where the water is actually flowing, and you check it. And if you see poison in the water, where did that come from? It came, came back from the, the wellspring. That's, so you go back to the wellspring to address the problem of what's flowing out of the faucets. Um, we get to do that as Christians. Uh, in the shadow of the cross, we watch our lives so we don't weaken. But, but we look at what's coming out of our lives to assess and then I think refocus our heart guarding efforts. So I have six questions at the bottom of page four to help help you with that. But these are to, to get you started, to maybe help you write three of your own or more. Um, these questions might reveal sin. Where they reveal sin, don't just say that's the way things are and, and move on, but, but actually specifically agree with God that those are sin. Confess it and repent. Repent means turn the other way. Do something different. Not as an effort towards self-justification, but as an effort to guard and live consistently with this new heart that God's given you. So where you see sin, confess it and repent. And don't hesitate to actually say, there is evidence of heart change in, in response to these questions. We're, we're prone sometimes to look so carefully for sin, which is a good, it's a, it's a good trait. Look for sin, weed it out, confess it, and get rid of it. And... Look for evidence of God's grace in your life and acknowledge it. Not to pat yourself on the back or glory in your own obedience, but to say, thank you, God. That is evidence that you've done what you said you did when you gave me a new heart and your spirit. Thank you. Let me glorify you all that much more as I continue to walk in obedience. So do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection for God? And what must change in your life? 
or continue in your life in response to that question. If you say, yeah, when I'm in God's word in the morning or when I'm in God's word in this way in the morning, I actually do sense an affection for him throughout my day. Or you know what, when I skip it, when I wake up late and think I'm just going to read in the afternoon, I go through the whole morning really unaware of God. That's the way I want you to think about these questions and to focus your heart guarding. Question two, do you have an appetite for God's word? And think about these. these this is the water flowing from your heart. How, how must this affect your heart guarding? Are you daily shepherding your heart to God and his word? Do your daily routines, including entertainment choices, internet use, free time priorities, reflect that you are guarding your heart above all else? How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you guard your heart? What lures your heart away from God, and how diligently do you flee this? Think of a few other questions. Um, maybe things like, how do I respond to unexpected difficulty? Uh, what do I listen to in the car? A key for me is when I pull my phone out, just thinking I have five minutes to burn, where does my thumb go? What kind of app do I launch? What do I do with that? Um, you know, do, do I go to Facebook if I am? Why? Am I seeking to love others there or, or get gossip? Am I forsaking time in God's word to get just gossipy news? Or even what do I do when I read the news? Am I seeing this as something that brings up anxiety in my, in my life or this world's out of control? Or, or do I see God sovereignly orchestrating events of history uh, towards his glory and trust him in those things. I, I don't know where you're prone to sin or where you're prone to express trust and pursuit of God. But think about your life and don't think quickly. Really just think what, what kinds of questions will help me get to the, help me assess and focus my heart guarding efforts. And realize that this is a helpful quote from Paul Tripp at the bottom of page four. If my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It's not enough to alter my behavior or change my circumstances. Christ transforms people by radically changing their heart. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of external pressure or incentive, like the pain of discipline. But when the pressure or incentive is removed, the changes disappear. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for the clarity of your word. And God, more than that, I, I thank you for doing the miraculous work in those here who believe in you of changing us from the heart. If any, maybe started to have revealed today that they're playing religion, outwardly trying to impress people, make themselves feel better by obeying, get better through, through a little bit of religion. God, I, I pray that they would despair of those efforts because they are fruitless. Apart from heart change, we are hopeless. God, we have sinned against you and we need you to forgive us. Thank you for forgiving us. And I pray that you would 
move any, if there's somebody here who is not a believer and just realizing that, God, may this morning be a morning of salvation where they would turn to you in repentance and faith and then be able to guard their heart for the first time, a new heart. You love to change us from the heart, to make us like you. And God, for those who have been saved, God, for all in our church, I I pray that you would characterize us as those who seek you from the heart. Who wouldn't just have Bible in the name of our church, but would have Bible as the, the bedrock foundation of who we are and what we do each day. And that as we read your word, we would first and most seek you there. And that would be evident through the way that we live. God, I pray that you would bless the the time of of small group as the women go out and talk, that they would outdo one another in showing honor as they listen well. Seek to build one another up through their words. And even love each other as they go out from here, diligent to pray, uh, care for one another where they should. God, I pray that your spirit in each person here would help the church be the church. Do the one another's, even in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.